Individuals have to be accountable for delivering what they said they would. And companies have to be open to letting individuals define how they're going to deliver what they say they will. It's much more powerful if I say, I could give you this contribution for the next nine months, and then I want to be done. I don't want to be held to a 12-month cycle because I know at the end of this nine months, I have to move for some reason. There should be a lot of value in that nine-month period that that's very different thinking about how to engage someone than it was before. If you're not committed for the next five years, you can't have this job. Well, that's kind of stupid. Not to mention that now, most likely, moving to another city doesn't actually even mean you have to leave the job. Right. Which is also a completely novel idea in the world of work. Right. That's probably another one of the things that we'll see more and more successfully delivered in the next two to five years, I think, is distributed work and the ability to actually feel comfortable doing what we're doing right now. Like, I have no problem having a deeply connected, very productive, video-based interaction at work. In fact, I almost prefer it at this point to a meeting where people get up and leave and whatever. The concept of an office in a conference room will have even more radical evolution over the next two to five years. That's a pretty short-term shift. Welcome to the Best Self-Management Podcast. I'm David Hassel. And I'm Shane Metcalf. Me and David have been working together along with our co-founder, Nazar, and all the amazing other people that are a part of 15.5 for the last seven years. And we are not the same people that we were seven years ago. One of the things we're a big stand for is like, how do we actually embrace the whole person and understand that can we support someone in thriving in their whole life? And if we do, then they're probably going to contribute more at work. Your mission is to attract the best talent, retain your high performers, and maximize everyone's potential. Hello and welcome to the Best Self-Management Podcast. My name is Shane Metcalf and I'm very excited to be welcoming John Foster to our show today. John is a business designer who helps people and organizations perform at their best. He's served many of the world's most innovative companies in both internal roles and consulting relationships. He has broad experience designing, building, and managing internal operations for talent-driven companies, including all aspects of HR, learning and development, and innovation. John is currently the Chief People Officer at TrueCar and has held the same roles at Hulu and IDEO. He's also worked as a consultant and advisor to dozens of other companies like Thrive Market, Tala, and Gensler, helping them establish talent as a strategic capability. John, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So John, I've been a big fan of yours for many years. You know, you've been a customer of 15.5 for quite some time. We've had some really cool conversations over the years about just how important it is to focus on developing your people. The development of your employees, probably one of the most strategic decisions that you can make as a company. And so I'm really excited to learn a little bit more about how you think about developing employees. And you know, in our language, we talk about helping people become the best versions of themselves. And I'm not sure if that's quite the same language that you use, but I know that the ethos is the same here. Certainly. Um, and I actually use something very similar when I talk about it. I like to say that I help people perform at their best. So we both use the word best there, and I think it lines up perfectly. Yeah. And so, so can you unpack what that actually means? You know, performing at our best. I think we all have sometimes a, a kind of an abstract idea 
of what our best performance might look like. But what does that really mean to you? Well, I'd say um, it has to involve at least two components, and I'm sure there's probably more if I really think about it. But just as we unpack, the first thing that comes to mind is giving your best means that you're in a position to use your strengths, your feeling well. Uh, in, in other words, you, you've got your full energy and focus that's available. And then you're also being provided with the proper support to not worry about things that you can't handle. So it lets you focus your energy, your skill, your expertise on something that's important that you care about. And so what's the relationship between somebody showing up as their best and the company creating conditions for them to be their best? You know, because it's an interesting balance of it's 100% our accountability to show up as our best. You know, we need to take full ownership of our own performance. And simultaneously, you know, it's hard to do our best work inside of a company that is actually maybe creating environments that are toxic and that aren't actually supporting that. So how do you see the relationship, you know, as chief people officer, what your role is in helping people show up as their best versus the individual employees and their responsibility to show up as their best? Well, I think as soon as you get to the place where you're not working alone, the metaphor of sports is really interesting. Even individual athletes performing things like in gymnastics or swimming have coaching staff and teammates. Uh, but work is very rarely ever something you do alone. So as soon as that's true, an organization is best served by providing conditions where people will work better together. So you can show up your best self and have a group around you that are not ready and able and then not be able to accomplish the best work or the best outcome. So I guess maybe best self is an input and performing at your best maybe is an output. And as a chief people officer, I, I certainly care about people being their best selves, but my job is to make sure that we're performing well together to accomplish whatever the purpose of the business is. Yeah, the um, best self without best performance isn't going to cut it in the business world for long. And no, so, I mean, yeah, it needs more. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, when you go inside of an organization, you've all obviously worked with some incredible companies. And so when you go in, where do you begin? What's your initial process to understand, all right, are we actually performing at our best? And if we aren't, where do we begin? Is it different in every company? Do you have a sense of like, do you always start with the leadership team? Are there certain key roles inside of company that you need buy-in before you can actually start working your magic? Yeah, there, well, there's kind of two completely different issues there, I think. One is the way I understand the conditions uh, that would help someone perform at their best, I use the concept of engagement. And that was originally kind of brought to my attention by the Gallup organization way, way earlier in my career as a way to identify the leading indicators that are necessary to help people provide what they call discretionary effort. And discretionary effort is only something an adult's going to provide if they choose to. A lot of people could show up at work and do maybe the basics or just enough to get by um, and not be giving their best or even showing up as their best and still not get fired. And you know, sadly, I think the state of the world of work it's more common that people are somewhat or barely engaged than fully engaged because usually the places they work are not that well set up. So they have this thing called a Q12. 
it's since been modified and evolved by lots of different companies, including Culture Amp and others like Glint, uh, I think Qualtrics, lots of companies, survey companies have these sort of assessments you can use to guide how ready is the organization to deliver high-performing work. So that's something I think is really important. You can also assess that stuff qualitatively. And that leads me to the second condition where you talk about you know who, who matters. Uh, I think if the leadership of the company, meaning the CEO and, and all significant C-level leaders, don't believe that talent is critical to their success or the most important driver of their you know, ongoing sort of winning position, then there's not a lot you can do because people will get treated more like objects and used more like widgets and you'll be more in a manufacturing model. Yeah. And it's kind of impossible to get to high engagement if the, if the dominant mindset of the, of the leadership team is manufacturing. So, so this is really interesting. So that there's a, there's a belief that talent needs to be one of the most important assets of the company. Now, if you don't believe that, if you don't believe that your people are what are ultimately going to make you successful or not, what are you believing? Well, what I've seen, you know, these are legitimate other views. Um, I've seen people believe that technology is the driving force. Um, there's a very famous innovative technologist who's trying to put rockets on the moon and get to Mars, who straight up would tell you, and, and I interviewed him directly, that people are in service of the mission and the mission is really about technology. And if they're not willing to just give everything to the mission, then they don't need to be here. In that particular situation, he, he could be right. For one thing, he's super clear and I really respect that. But I'm not the kind of person who would want to work in that environment. So it's just not a good fit. It's two different philosophies about how to yeah. accomplish the mission of that company. Yeah, that particular individual is a really interesting one because it's, there's so much to admire about what they're doing. And also, there's no way in hell I would want to work for that individual. Um, right. And I don't, well, I don't well, think most choice, people right? would. Yeah. <laughs> but there are some. And that's the part that matters is every business has to put out there a clear indicator of what they're trying to do and how they want to get there. And they'll attract the right people if they're super clear about it. And this is an interesting point because in a way, it's there's a paradox here, you know, that it's not that there's only one way to succeed in business. There's not only one way to believe that only talent is it's only about people or it's only about technology, that you can actually have these kind of competing truths and hold them with some level of equality. But in a way, it's to, you know, the power is in defining, well, what do you want to believe? How do you want to play? And then having conviction on that path. Well, and I would add one other thing, which is being clear about what there are some businesses where this is required. I think if you're going to work in a creative environment, if you're going to work in a customer-centered environment, you need people to serve and deliver in the moment, empathetic, personable, uh, personalized service and, and efforts. Then you have to trust that individual that's delivering to do it. So if you're in sales or customer support, or any kind of uh, retail business. And, and also, if you're trying to invent new customer products, putting a rocket on the moon, that there is no individual user customer that you could point to. So it falls to the founder visionary who's trying to reinvent the world. That's the customer. Uh, but in a place where you're expecting loyalty and you know, payment for a service or a product, 
I think you automatically now need to be a talent-centered business because it's a human business. And so I, I do think there is a place for each, but understanding the nature of the business does drive which philosophy I would recommend. What do you think has changed in terms of being a talent-centered organization from you know now in the 2020s from you know 20 years ago, 40 years ago? You know, what has shifted in terms of creating an environment where people can truly thrive? that we're now doing or that's starting to emerge on the scene that is either brand new or just uh, was super fringe just a, a couple of decades ago? Well, sadly, I've lived through those, <laughs> those uh, cycles uh, because I've been in business for more than 20 years. Um, not quite 40, but enough to be able to respect that. And when I was coming of age in college and, and uh, early in my career, Teams, and there was this great book by McKinsey called The Wisdom of Teams, which was built on their research studying executive teams that really perform much better than others. And they, they put out the idea that a collaborative, uh, self-determined team is going to be higher performing than what they called a working group. And that was pretty much the cutting edge of people and talent-centered insight at the time. And that was considered kind of new which is kind of fascinating to me now. So, so, so a collaborative, self-determined, I mean, is that kind of speaking to intrinsic motivation that people sure. have some, some autonomy, they have some capacity to make up their own decisions and change course as needed? Absolutely. I really admire the work that is composed into the book Prime to Perform and also Daniel Pink's book Drive. They talk a lot about uh, self-determination theory and, and the idea of intrinsic motivation. So I, I won't go into that too detail here. It's a little geeky, yeah. but um, we, we, we've gone. We've had it, a podcast where we've gone deep into intrinsic motivation because it, it, it is an essential right. piece to understanding. You know hum, what actually motivates human beings to actually do the discretionary value, like we were talking about yeah. earlier. There's a number of resources we'd like to share with you. If you're in this transition, you're realizing you've moved to remote work, it's probably going to be a while that you're going to be working in this fashion. So again, some of the things we talked about, really leaning on video and, and some of these tech tools, understanding that your job is to create an environment of intrinsic motivation. The tool stack that we've mentioned, Asana, Slack, Zoom, 15.5, we like Google Docs or Quip as a way to collaborate on documents. We've got some other resources. So the 15.5 blog, 15.5.com slash blog has lots of resources on remote work. We actually just recorded a great webinar today by Jeff Smith, who's a PhD who runs our Best Self Academy on some of the practices that you could use to roll out with your management team and your individual managers. We'll also mention the 15.5 Academy, where we've got courses on vital skills for managers to effectively communicate with and manage remote teams. So that's 15.5.com slash academy. We have the best self-manager certification there that's free. And we're giving away 15.5 through June 15th for teams of up to 50. This is a great opportunity for us to support you in this transition. And hopefully we won't be in this situation for very long, but we'd like to offer folks out there a way to start doing these check-ins and support during this really, really difficult time. So 40 years ago, I don't think there was a whole lot of concern or understanding of intrinsic motivation as an important component of work. I think it was accepted that you did the job you were told to do and performed your part. And that's what I talk about when I, when I mention manufacturing as a model. You, when you, you were part of a process that was defined by someone else, 
And there were a select few people in the company that got to decide what would happen. And most everybody else just did what they were told. And that was okay. And I think what changed big time in my lifetime is the idea of exponential change and well described in the book, Future Shock, which also was a early book I read in the the 80s about what was coming in, in our lifetime that we're living now. And that's the idea that we hit an inflection point 10,000 years into humanity, that means that everything we learned from our parents and their previous generations is at question. And we're now living year to year sometimes massive amounts of change that make it more important for us to figure things out along the way, be more agile. That's why agile software works better. It moves faster and it's customer-centered. So things like asking questions, being focused on what's evolving. Another phrase for this is VUCA. Uh, with volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous environment. That happened in the last 10 years for sure. So now we're living where CEOs and executives don't really know the answer to the problem that's going to help their company grow. So they have to ask the people on their team or in their company to help them figure it out. And that's inherently requires choice and discretionary effort and creativity. It's not top down, I'll tell you what to do. It's, hey, help us figure this out. Yeah, I mean, it totally demolishes the traditional org chart of saying the executives know best, the executive, the CEO is the smartest one in the room, they have the vision, they have all the answers to actually being a little bit of a more, in a way, a more chaotic organization where information and solutions can come from any direction, from any angle. Absolutely. So what, what do you think is the inflection point that we're currently at when it comes to people management? Well, what I see unfolding right now, what I'm most excited about is the idea of agile careers and the idea of uh, skills profile and a portfolio of, of evidence that you carry instead of a resume of places where you worked. You have sort of a, a trophy case or a grab bag of things that you've done, and you use those to describe your competencies and evaluate opportunities and say, okay, since I've been able to do project management and software coding and presentations, and here's my three examples, I think I could do this next piece of work, which is going to require someone who can lead a team through a difficult problem and satisfy a customer. And so the work is much more granular and it's much more formulaic around a project. They call it project-based learning as well. So things that are shorter in duration, more concrete and specific about what's required, and uh, much more molecular or or sort of fluid in how you think about them instead of a job that's going to be three years and then I'm going to move up a level and I'm still in the same profession in the same career at the same company. Those are much more blunt, larger containers. So the inflection point is how can we get more granular and fluid so that individuals are, and I call it skills fluency. If you're more fluent in your own skills and you can assess what's needed and discuss it, Again, why I like 15.5, what's important? How should we do it? What do you think? Those are all questions. So if you're asking a lot of questions and you're using a more granular framework, then people can reassemble themselves every six months, maybe every three months. As long as it's a valuable output, you can get paid for that, string it together into a career or profession. Yeah, that kind of an agile approach requires an enormous level of self-awareness. You know, you need to know what your skills are. You need to know what your genius is in order to 
feel confident to be able to actually walk into that other, you know, apply for that other project and say, yeah, this is actually what I know. This is what I love doing. For sure. And self-awareness at that level of complexity requires a tool and a framework and a set of words or terms that you can use to describe things easily. And so now that we have companies like yours that can do pull downs, drop downs, matching, and we've got the computing power and the software interface that all works, this is much easier. Um, it was really hard to do manually. And teaching self awareness in my career has been historically very difficult because you're using all of those separate things to give people snapshots and they never add up to anything. So nobody knows what they're for. So when it comes to the world of HR, people operations, what do you really hope that we leave behind? in the last decade and we don't carry with us into the 2020s? Like, what do you think is just completely outdated? My glib answer is the future of. I did a presentation a while back where I said, you know, I'm here to talk about, you know, emerging concepts or things that are exciting. And I promise you, it's not the future. It's happening right now. I've heard so many disrupt. I, we should lose the word disrupt in the world of HR. <laughs> yes, um, please. You know, it's just, I think we're at a point now where people just call it hacking, disruption, and future of, and somehow it's a conference. So I think practitioners in the, in the world of HR, people, whatever you want to call it, just need to be more craftspeople and less policy people. I think it's really hard to implement this stuff. I think um, running a company effectively that's talent-centered is on the order of a Hollywood production that never ends. It's, it's performance art. And you're, so you're trying to get, or, or maybe it's like a, again, like a pro sports team, like football, you get to end the game after a couple hours and go back and think about it. When you work in a corporation, you never end the game. You just keep playing. So it'd be nice if there was a way to, this isn't a leave behind us so much as it is an embrace. I guess the elements of leadership being a team effort and a group outcome not a uh, formula or, or something you can be certified in. Uh, we can leave behind certifications. I don't think they're mm. that helpful. I don't know. That's a little bit of a random answer, but... Um, well, well no, is that because that leadership is more of a verb than a noun? That, that it is something yeah. that, it, that only exists in the present moment? It's not something like a certification doesn't mean jack if yeah. you're not actually embodying it? Right. It requires doing and being. It's, it's not something you can just learn. So uh, I'm definitely not going to ask you what you think the future of work is coming now. Um, but, you know, there's, there's a great Werner Vinge quote, and he says that the future is already here. It just hasn't been equally distributed yet. Yes. That's and great. so what are, you know, you've, you've alluded to this a little bit, you know, with the agile roles. What are the other high-performing, highly engaged companies that you've witnessed? What are they doing that other companies could start doing this year? What are the things that you would, if you had a magic wand and you could accelerate the distribution of these tactics, of these mindsets, what would those be? Well, the first word that comes to mind that I would say is a drum I beat is reciprocity. And it's the idea that when you interact between an individual and an organization, that there are benefits to both. It's not something historically where it's been the company wins uh, and the individual has to suffer or, or sublimate in some way and wait for the organization to validate them. I think this sounds a little bit 
like unionistic, but it's not about the power of grouping together as individuals. It's about the power and the meaningfulness and the, the inherent worth of an individual as is. And that needs to be more respected. So when you have a humble leader that's saying, hey, let's hire some other people to work with me at the founder level, they tend to become partners and they're co-founders. But then you get 20 people in or 50 people in, you start hiring employees or team members. And the gymnastics that people go through to call them different names is kind of hilarious because they don't want to own up to the idea that these people work for me. They actually kind of feel bad about it, but they know they don't know how to make everybody a partner. One of the companies I worked at a long time ago is IDEO. And just because of David Kelly, the founder, one of the main founders, there's others too, but um, Bill Moggridge and a couple of others, they all believe they were, they were not better than anyone else, even when they were running the company. And because of that, the values and culture and, and processes that make up IDEO are much more equal one-on-one and empowering. And so I think that's actually a fundamental paradigm shift that business has to embrace to get the future to be more evenly distributed. Those companies that have founders that really are behaving that way are not using authority and power of organizational dynamics to push their agenda. They are literally curious about what could happen next and open to the idea that this person walking in the door tomorrow who's employee number 10,004 actually might have something they don't have. So that, that's a huge shift in thinking. And I don't find that equally distributed at all. Yeah, you know, it's funny, we're, we're about uh, 200 people now and we hire people and I know they have things that I don't have. I'm like, thank goodness that we're hiring people who are going to bring an entirely new skill set, entirely new ideas to the game here. Yeah, and so you have to have an organization that, you know, if you think about stages of organizations, you go through these big S-curves of, of development and then you run out of steam and have to reinvent and figure out what you are next. And if your company is moving from a platform or a piece of software to an environment where people empower others, that's a different mission than it was before. And suddenly you're doing media and you're doing podcasts and you're doing all kinds of other things that have nothing to do with software. So I think that's what's really emerging is leaders and companies are starting to see a longer picture and understand that they are a collection of resources to make an impact. And that impact can have financial gain as well as social gain or other types of gain. Those companies, I think, are the ones that are going to be more likely around in the future and that we'll see more of. Is that part of how you select the companies that you go in and work with and you know you take leadership roles in? Is that they, there's the potential for that mindset? I'd say that's, well, yeah, my idealistic self agrees with that 100%. The fact that I have a job and a a mortgage and kids that need to be taken care of financially means that I don't always get to pick from that choice. Sometimes I'm more tactical and I can help a company go through a cycle of growth simply by doing basic people management things that they're not already doing. And I tend to cycle through those companies faster because it's more mercenary tactical work and it has served the purpose at a time. It's the difference between building a wall and building a cathedral. I can yeah. build walls. Well, I mean, I think that part of the, you know, this idea of that we're at an inflection point around the management approach, leadership style, understanding that, you know, just, just the fact that culture 10 years ago 
Tony Shea was just starting to kind of popularize this idea that culture was important 10 years ago. You know, 20 years ago, nobody was talking about culture. Oh, no, I was. I was for sure. I worked for a culture change company in 1995 called Pecos River Learning. And we were beating our heads against the wall. And our clients were all Fortune 500 companies. And I will, to this day, remember when I was at Fidelity Investments in my second corporate job, presenting to the organization the idea of the Gallup Q12. Marcus Buckingham had written the book, First Break All the Rules. It was becoming popular. And I was like, thank God someone wrote this. And then I brought in the Q12. And one of the questions in there is, I have a best friend at work. And everybody in the room that I presented to was like, <laughs> oh, can we just delete that question? Yeah. Why do we need that question? And it was absolutely anathema to them. Today, totally different. So I agree with you. And I still think of Tony Shea as a youngster in the business because I hate to sound old and crusty, but <laughs> yeah, that was holacracy is revolutionary and everything. But that's like my point's going to be that the arc of curve, the arc of change here is bigger than you or I probably would like it to be. And we're serving the purpose by presenting and clarifying and amplifying a lot of these concepts. But, you know, I don't think that servant leadership is a new concept. That's been around since. I don't know, the 1800s? I don't know, earlier. The idea of being a humble leader that serves your team has been around a long time. At scale, the complexity of the Industrial Revolution and, and the early 20th century assembly line manufacturing firms, that was only 100 years ago in, in the world. To me, that's forever in a lifetime. But we're seeing evolution. I don't know if there's a single inflection point that's going to happen in five to 10 years that will make us go, finally, we made it. I just yeah, think well, I mean it's interesting you know because we need exponential to tools that are that can be exponential to create the right mindset and the right kind of approach. And so do you think that we are at an exponential inflection point in terms of the mindset shift around these things or is it going to be a more linear kind of okay maybe 5% of businesses are thinking like this in 2020, and maybe by 2030, it'll be 10% and then 15%? Or do you think that we will see a, a massive amount of change in the near future around the mindset of how to manage human beings? I mean, I know, I know where our vision is. You know, like our vision with 15.5 is to unlock the potential of every member of the global workforce. Yeah. And we know that's not going to happen by ourselves. That's going to be a collaborative yeah, yeah, yeah. group there. effort. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you know, we want to paint the picture. We want to set that as the ideal. And yeah, maybe it takes 100 years. Maybe we can, in 20 years, we can play a significant role in changing the mindset of how organizations think about their people rather than as resource, you know, pieces of coal to throw in the furnace, burn them up, right. get a little steam. Well, push the engine is, forward. How old is 15.5 now? Five years? We're, we're coming on uh, eight years officially, but really about 10 years. So we're really, we're okay. just at the end of our first decade. Okay. So I'd say that's, you've already changed the mindsets of hundreds and thousands of people. So on that pace, is it exponential? I do think it's exponential, but I think that the time frame is pretty big. And this is your you know laugh because I, I I know how it sounds, but we've lived eight hundred and two lifetimes in the history of humanity, and you and I are in one lifetime in that eight hundred. Yeah. And 
we are on the other side of, according to the future shock concept, 803, 804, what our kids experience, what my daughter experiences as a college student today when she enters the workforce in four years is exponentially different than what I experienced 30 years ago. And 10 years of that time, you've been doing your work. So that's significant. And I do think yeah. 10 more years, we will see even more massive effect. So yeah, it's exponential. And I think the work we're doing is being more and more accepted and more and more having greater impact. And people are, you know, my goal is that more people are happy day to day with the work that they're doing and happy, yeah. not in the sense of yay, but satisfied and comfortable that what they're doing is the best that could be done at the time. Yeah. Not feeling wasted. When we started 15 and 5, nobody was talking about continuous feedback, continuous performance management. It was a completely novel idea. And it is really cool to see that become a mainstream idea at this point. Yeah. That's happened first. I mean, I think I started, I've implemented in my career probably 15 corporate performance management systems. And I started changing in 19, no, it was 2005 when I got to IDEO and they were like, there's no way we're doing performance management. And the previous six or seven that I had done been for traditional corporations where they wanted an annual review with ratings. And in 2005, I started down the path of no ratings. Let's not do ratings. Let's just talk about where you are in your career and let's have a discussion about what will help you be successful. And IDEO was ripe for that. And IDEO was ahead of me and they were founded in the late 80s, I think. So that, that was one of those few bright spots that now you can look around everywhere, every one of your clients, customers, and dozens and hundreds of other companies that are saying, forget reviews, they don't work. Let's not use ratings. And General Electric did the Rankin Yank bell curve model and had great influence for 20 years, but then that lived and died and went away. I don't see this dying because it's more human-centered and more sustainable and more directly relevant and actually business rational. Uh, when people are engaged, they produce more. They maybe don't stay as long, which is, that's one of the fundamental differences. We have more itinerant workers and founders don't feel so, I think, hurt by disloyalty when someone leaves. As in old companies, if you left your manager, it was like, oh my God, my career's over. Now you could... You know, some people just leave just because they want to move to another city. That's great. As long as there's a way to exchange, that's back to reciprocity. Individuals have to be accountable for delivering what they said they would. And companies have to be open to letting individuals define how they're going to deliver what they say they will. It's much more powerful if I say, I could give you this contribution for the next nine months, and then I want to be done. I don't want to be held to a 12-month cycle because I know at the end of this nine months, I have to move for some reason. There should be a lot of value in that nine-month period. That That's very different thinking about how to engage someone than, than it was before. If you're not committed for the next five years, you can't have this job. Well, that's kind of stupid. Not to mention that now, most likely, moving to another city doesn't actually even mean you have to leave the job. Right. Which is that, also a completely yeah. novel idea in the world of work. Right. That's probably another one of the things that we'll see more and more successfully delivered in the next two to five years, I think, is distributed work and the ability to actually feel comfortable doing what we're doing right now. Like I, I have no problem having 
a deeply connected, very productive video-based interaction at work. In fact, I almost prefer it at this point to a meeting where people, you know, they get up and leave and whatever. Like, I, I bet you the concept of an office in a, in a conference room will have even more radical evolution over the next two to five years. That's a pretty short-term shift. So John, why do you do this? You know, I mean, aside from, you know, mortgage and the kids, you know, what actually drives you? What's your own intrinsic motivation, your own self-determination that has you continue to show up and help organizations create better performance systems, help organizations be a little more human? Well, when you talk about the motivators and intrinsic motivators, play is one of them. And play is usually defined by doing something you just feel really good about doing and being uh, sort of intrigued by the possibilities and pushing the envelope and continuing to kind of indulge in possibilities that are brought about by that particular activity. So for me, it's a big puzzle to figure people out. In graduate school, one of the only things I took away was this phrase from my professor, Charles F. Luna, things that matter are messy. And I sort of, that kind of captivated me as a graduate student. Earlier, I was puzzled by the idea that you can send 28 seventh graders off into the woods for, for 30 days and have them come back friends. That was weird. I went on wilderness adventure trips when I was younger. And I love the idea of the, the exploration and the, and the journey. But I, I came away fascinated with the human dynamic that happened. It was like, how did these people I never knew before become my best friends ever in like two weeks? That was my original sort of consciousness of, wow, like, what is it that happened there? And I played sports. And so I kind of identify as a coach. And I like the idea of helping someone be good at what they're doing. I don't care so much what they're doing as I do about helping them get better. And getting better at scale with a complex group of people is the most puzzling thing I can play with. So I'm just fascinated by how hard it is to get it all to work. And I don't feel like I've ever done it yet. And I want to keep trying. Have you ever taken some of the lessons you've learned or the exercises you've actually done with the wilderness survival stuff and brought it into companies? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Earlier in my career, that's all I did. Like I took groups of people on ropes courses and, you know, I took Microsoft ex executives out into the woods and did this big river crossing thing. And, and I think I missed one of my best opportunities for a career uh, is the show Survivor. Uh, you know, all those things they do as team challenges. <laughs> I was like, yeah. oh my God, why didn't I think of that? Uh, business, business survivor. Yeah, I mean, the idea, we used to call them initiatives. And there's this book called Silver Bullets. And there's this group called Project Adventure in Maine that developed a book of these types of activities. And we used to use that book to take teams out and help them figure out who they were together and what they wanted to do and look, no, notice patterns in their behavior. Um, so they're just simulations. Yeah, one, one of my favorite ideas is that, that, that challenge and novelty are the fastest way to hot fuse a relationship. For sure. You know, if, you, if you want 10 people to suddenly become friends, throw them into a challenging and a novel situation where they actually have to collaborate and figure that shit out together. And yeah, they come back and all of a sudden they're a team. So my big epiphany, what got me into what I do now is, well, why not just do that with actual work? Isn't work itself novel enough? Right. Cha yeah, challenging and so novel. Why, would I go yeah. in the woods? Uh, why don't I just facilitate this next meeting where I know everybody's going to show up and act like crazy people because they're trying to solve this really hard problem that's puzzling our business? Like that is when I went, oh, 
it's the same. So instead of doing experiential learning in simulations, I would do experiential learning and real live, you know, customer relevant actual business cases. Yeah, and that's what I love is that I think that's part of this inflection point is that we're starting to realize that everyday work can be the developmental work. It is. You know, our exactly. growth and development can happen every single day rather than once a year on a ropes course. Right. That was for me two things. One was I got the chance to work at IDEO where they understood innovation and they had developed a language around brainstorming and prototyping. And everybody knew what prototyping meant and that that was in, per, in, in service of a better outcome. And so we built T-shirts for our onboarding program that just said prototype. And so when you wore the T-shirt, you wore a prototype because every day each person's a prototype of who they're going to be later if they see it as a learning opportunity. So it's that simple. And then since IDEO, I've been trying to basically help everybody understand that failure is not understanding that this situation has an opportunity to learn and grow. Learning and growing means you're going to have setbacks and you're going to make mistakes, but that's not failure. And underlying that are some really wonky old school thinking. Here's another thing we could leave behind, being embarrassed if I get it wrong. Like that's the dumbest idea ever. People that were shamed into feeling stupid because someone smart thought they were stupid, that pervaded corporate America. In the, and they had there's this article called Smart Talk. It was a Harvard Business Review article, and it was called The Problem with Smart Talk. So you sit in a room, and this is one of my assessments. If everybody's sitting around talking about things and there's no real connection going on, but they are really smart and intelligent, and everybody is, wow, they really know their data. But what does it mean? There's no insight development. There's no actual communication. Then you're just a bunch of smart people sitting around. You're not doing anything. And a lot of companies pay a lot of people for that, and it should be unacceptable. You know, I think I think you should have mistakes happening all day long. Most influential book for your career? Well, I've mentioned two of them already um, early in my career. Certainly, Future Shock and The Wisdom of Teams would be two big ones. More recently, most definitely Drive. And these are books that yeah, are sort of phenomenal. like bringing together okay. concepts that I've studied in school or knew elsewhere, but bringing them together in a really great way. Predictably Irrational, love that book. Dan Ariely. I mean, I don't know if there's one, but that, there's a handful. Such a, an amazing abundance of resources if, for people that want to actually go study the science, study the kind of, you know, these new ideas and then apply them into an organization. Yeah. At one point, I really thought my calling was going to be to write a book. Kind of as I was exiting IDEO, after five years of being the head of HR there, I, I was sort of ready to try something else. And I thought, maybe I'll write a book. And I started down the path and even paid an editor and kind of got myself into an outline and did all this work. And I got like three months into the process and I said, you know what? I'm, I'm not an author. I'm a, I'm a performer. I'd rather experiment and play than describe it. And there's so many other people that have done the research and told the stories and made these really great books that I'd rather consume the books and then try to live it than come up with some book that would somehow contribute to the greater good because I don't think there's anything I know that's that unique. You know, in so many ways, that actually, I think, is the root of how do we actually get people to do the best work of their lives is that kind of self-awareness. And you probably wouldn't have had that realization that, oh, wow, I'm a practitioner. 
I want to go in and do the work, not describe the work. But yeah. you had to kind of dip your toe in the water to have that realization, which then lets you actually be 100% committed to being the practitioner of it. Yeah, exactly. And in, in so many ways, I feel like that's what we actually, that's our role of leading people is to create that environment where people can have those realizations about what they really want to do, what their purpose is, what their genius is, and so that they can then spend the majority of their time actually doing that. Mm-hmm. Finding your place. And I think there was a book in the 70s called What Color Is Your Parachute? Have you heard of that book? Oh, yeah. That, uh, we did that in high school. Yeah. Yeah. Again, like it's not like some of the stuff we're working on isn't like brand new thinking, but the ability to do it, it's so complex. There's so many variables in both time and situation that make it difficult to ever figure out who you are, that you need massive amounts of software and really good frameworks that blend together to figure it out and get any sense of, or else it's a full-time job. Yeah, we used to have OD people that were paid to get the, to apply their PhD to assess people. And at the end, you had two days of assessment. You had some understanding of who you were, but it was someone else's understanding of who you were. And then you're supposed to read it. Well, and I think that's one of the cool things of where companies start to kind of grok the idea that if we make this easier for our people to develop that self-awareness and we put a little bit of resources, a little bit of attention in accelerating that process to develop that radical self-awareness, radical strengths alignment, that's going to tremendously benefit us as a company. Like we're going to make a lifelong contribution to this person and we're going to get better quality work as a result. And I think you have to have the and probably in order to sell the fact that you're a business. But it goes without saying, in my opinion, if you have people who are more self-aware and more clear about who they are, what they want, and what they can do, the outcome is automatic. So then we have to go figure out how to get better work. It's a natural result of that, of that prerequisite. And I think that's why so many companies struggle with engagement is they don't understand what the actual work is. The work is helping people figure out what they're good at. The work isn't helping people get work done. That is a really important distinction right there. So the work is helping people understand what they want to do or that what they're good at versus how to do the work. Yes. So traditional performance management is I'm managing the way you do your work and I'm checking in on you every five minutes and I'm giving you a rating and it's sort of Taylorism. I'm studying what you're doing. And with my wisdom and expertise and perspective, I'm saying wrong, wrong, right, wrong, wrong, right, wrong whatever. And you're getting feedback. And feedback is a machine term. It's feedback not on what you're doing, but the like, according to our model of how you should yes. be doing it, you're right. doing it It's wrong. about how, right? So we've decided how, now do it that way. And if you don't do it that way, I'm going to smack you. And if you do it that way, I'm going to give you, you know, a bonus. That's extrinsic and it doesn't work. And it's pointing at the wrong part of the problem. The real part of the problem is understanding that Humans are immensely creative and able to do whatever it is they're going to do if they want to. So if you could figure out what people want to do and what they're good at, my, my big learning at IDEO was we had a lot of people who knew what they wanted, but their self-assessments on what they were good at weren't very accurate. So they needed to just, it's not how they did it, it's what they did. So like you pointed out, I'm not an author. I'm a terrible author. 
I'm a great facilitator. That's a fundamental difference in what I like about work and what I'm good at. And if you want to be my editor and tell me how to write a book, you're going to spend all your time telling me how to write the book. And then there's two of us writing the book. That's not very efficient. But if you just figured out the beginning, John, you know what? I, I just don't think you're an author. So why don't you go do something else? I need an author. That, bang. Like, so if 15.5 provides the platform for people to figure that out, capture it, tell the story, explain it, and then match it to what's needed, what's needed is a whole different story now. Because now we have people that have to figure out how to define work and the terms that are more about what should get done instead of how. That's new for most managers. I can't wait to get your feedback on a new competency and skills assessment that we are just releasing as part of the best self reviews. So really excited to to get your thoughts on that. Um, John, we are out of time. Any closing thoughts that you would like to leave us with? Yeah, I mean, this can all be fun. Work should be fun. It shouldn't be hard. And what's hard when, certainly when you're challenged above your limits. And that, that's called eustress. It's good kind of stress because it makes you stretch and learn and grow. But it shouldn't be suffering because it doesn't feel right or, or somehow you're feeling manipulated. That realization that every human has a right to do things they love is kind of radical and sounds a little soft, but I think it's pretty central to being a high performer. Yeah, I mean, what an incredible world it would be if we inverted the ratio of, uh, you know, suffering to play and joy at work, mm -hmm. you know, where, where actually work was a default, playful, fun, enjoyable, joyful experience. For sure. John, thank you so much. Really enjoyed chatting with you and can't wait to continue the conversation. Anytime, anytime at all. Great talking to you too. A big thank you to our producer, Counter-Ray Creative, and our executive producer, David Misney, and Stacey Hurst, our guest coordinator. Please visit 155.com slash podcast. That's the number 15 and the word five. For more information on today's discussion, for additional resources and special offers. One of the easiest and highest leverage things you can do to support us in this podcast is write a review on Apple iTunes or Google Play. It really does go a long way in terms of getting the word out and more people can hear this message so that we can start a movement and truly get more and more businesses out there helping their people become their best selves. To get all the latest episodes, please subscribe to Best Self Management on iTunes or Google Play. And if you have a question or comment you'd like us to address in a future show, please email us at podcast at 15.5.com. And finally, thank you for listening to this podcast. Until next time, know that we support you in being and becoming your best self. Mm -hmm.